Today's episode of Keeping It 1600 is brought to you by Children's International. Poverty is a vicious cycle, but it can be broken. When you give to Children International, you're giving children the health, education, empowerment, and employment they need to break free for life. At Children International, 84% of every dollar goes toward helping children. That's how you know you're not just making a donation, you're making an impact. This giving season, give something that counts. Donate today at children.org give. That's children.org give. Welcome to Keeping It 1600. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. And on the pod today, we have Anna Navarro, GOP strategist, CNN contributor, former Never Trumper, uh, going to talk to us about all kinds of stuff. There's a certain brand of Republican we like to have on the show. I don't know what ties them all together. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, but first, happy Electors Day. Thank you. Today, the Electoral College is meeting today, guys. I got you a banana. The last offense. I heard from uh, Jeb Bartlett. This is the last offense. <laughs> <laughs> Deborah Messing so, wants you to know. We should we should do something. Friend of the pod. There are videos. Um, okay, so the, this is how it works. John, you were asking how it works. Yeah, I don't know how it works. Wait, hold on. Let me. You know what? I see all this stuff on the news about electoral college. But John, how, how does it work? John's just a John's just a rube. <laughs> Joe Rube here, trying to understand this politics. I'm glad Seems you all crazy. I'm glad you asked, Jonathan. So uh, the electors gather in state capitals across the country to cast their ballots. Like Montpelier? Like Montpelier. Hmm. Like Albany. Um, like Pierre? So they are chosen by the part, or they're chosen with a lot of party influence. So they're basically party loyalists. And uh, basically, you know, if Trump wins your state, then the Trump slate of electors goes to vote. And if Clinton wins your state, then the Clinton like, slate Like California, so they'd be in Sacramento. Right. They'd be in Sacramento. Um so, and then what happens is they all vote today, but the results are not read or counted until January 6th in Congress. So all the news we're getting right now about the Electoral College is just people interviewing people as they walk out of the vote. In places, like, Ta- in places like Tallahassee. You're going to go with this joke. You're just going to keep going. I like it. Um, so can, the uh, question, can Trump electors vote against Trump? Because that is what everyone's, some people are hanging their hopes on. Um, in some cases, Yes. Nothing in the Constitution or in federal law says that they have to vote. Uh, some state laws say that you have to vote for the person who won the popular vote in your state, or you get fined, or you get replaced, and just your vote doesn't count Yeah, anyway. the open question as to whether these are constitutional laws. Right. I, mean, I think they are not constitutional. We don't know. No, but not I also, the Supreme Court yet. Uh, my legal expertise is an LSAT score I'm proud of, so <laughs> that's about it. If Now, if you do not get to 270, if enough electors defect, the election is then thrown into the House of Representatives which would obviously elect Donald Trump president or my or or in a in a in a move might just elect uh, Mike Pence president who knows anyway um, what do we think about this i mean so here's the thing the no election has ever been overturned by the electors the last faithless elector which is what happens when you vote for someone who's not who you're not pledged to vote for was in 2004 when a minnesota elector voted for edwards for president and vice president just a real mm, good judgment there to john kerry yeah <laughs> and the only and the only person who didn't get enough electors in 1836 the election was sent to the House for the vice presidential candidate, Richard Mentor Johnson, uh, who was again elected once he got to the Senate. So that's where we are. So here's the thing. There's been this whole movement called Hamilton electors. 
Oh. <laughs> you know what? Named after Alexander Hamilton, uh, who everyone knows because there was a musical named after him. <laughs> He's the star yeah, of the musical. <laughs> <laughs> Alexander Hamilton stock, uh, very overpriced right now. <laughs> right? I'd consider uh, shorting Hamilton stock. <laughs> uh, and, the, and the hope was that, that maybe enough electors defected from Trump to throw this into the House of Representatives. Um, what do we think of this movement here? First of all, should they? Should should the electors decide not to vote for Donald Trump? It doesn't look like it's going to happen, by the way. We have about half them in, and it seems like no one has defected yet, except one from Maine who's, who's voting for Bernie Sanders instead, who's <laughs> supposed to vote for Clinton. Uh, I mean, it's so hard because we're in this place where Donald Trump hasn't actually gotten any power yet, right? It's all right. very, um, uh, what's the word? I don't know, perspective. Yeah. And so... On the one hand, it's obviously you know not commensurate uh, with what's happened. You know, Donald Trump uh, won this election. He won the state. You know, he won these states. These states uh, where these electors are coming from. You know, are, are been chosen to vote with the, the the people of of the state that they come from. Um, so it's really hard to justify saying overturn it because we're afraid that Donald Trump will be more than just the worst Republican president. In our lifetimes, he'll be something else, something more evil, something anti-democratic, uh, because of all these signs and symptoms, but no actual governing yet. On the other hand, you know, who knows what we'll be looking back on a few years from now and wondering if we were naive at the time. Uh, so I, I guess what I come back to is it's a moot point because this is a fantasy, because um, if you wanted to create the political space for these electors to do this. It's a lot more work than an internet video and a protest outside of a state capitol with a sign that says this is not normal. Um, if you want to do something as as uh, um, radical as the Electoral College overturning the results of the election, you need to create an incredible amount of political pressure because norms are not defended because people like them. They're defended because there are costs associated with violating them. And if you want somebody to say that Donald Trump violates our democratic norms in some, in some way that is so serious that it rises to the level that the Electoral College has to overturn it, has to overturn it, you need to create the political space for these people to do that and costs for them not to do that. And no one did any work. You know, actors speaking to camera to individual electors is no work. No, there's no, there's no political, there's no, uh, uh, there's no political force behind this request whatsoever. Tommy, so what are you people what, talking about? Tommy, what do you think here? I largely agree with Lovett without the swelling it was really smart what I and, said. and random shot at uh, YouTube video stars. I, I agree. I, I mean, I think like I understand all the reasons why people are frustrated by this election. Donald Trump is a monster. Jim Comey's letter made the process feel like it had been rigged or by an insider. Uh, the Russians, you know, we learn more about how they hacked it every the election every day. Fine. Um, that said, nothing has convinced me that that Donald Trump didn't win the election, and he won it in places like Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, where it was, uh, you know, fought intensely. And so, I just can't think of any rationale for doing this for the same reason Love just said. I mean, imagine if the shoe was on the other foot. Remember how much we raised hell when we thought Trump was going to call the system rigged if he lost and, and refused to accept the outcome. Um, you know, the country is bigger than one election and one party, and we have to remember that. And love, it's right. Maybe in four years we'll look back and think, God, were we naive? But I just, you know, you have to make these decisions based on what we know at the time. Uh, just to make sure it's not a podcast where all of us are agreeing all the time on everything. Um, say we woke up tomorrow morning and Donald Trump didn't get the electors he needed and didn't hit 270. 
would all the three of us be very upset that norms were broken, or would we be pretty excited? I'd be at Norm's restaurant no. <laughs> going crazy on a celebratory, horrible sandwich. <laughs> no, because I, I think what would happen is that, that his people would not justifiably, but not surprisingly, be going nuts, and there'd be riots in the streets, and there'd be violence. I mean, I, I, think, I think the fallout from something like that would do more to... Um, to help Putin's goal of reducing faith in democracy than almost anything else that's happened to date. I think it would be an incredible crisis. I think we have no idea what. I, I think it's um, inviting I think a, the situation we're talking about, by the way, is not that Donald Trump doesn't become president. Because I think what it is is, if what what would it be like if he didn't get the votes he needed, and then this went to the House, and then the House made him president? It would be a a black mark on Donald Trump for Donald right. Trump as he starts his presidency, exactly, which f- further delegitimizing it, right? So yeah, that would maybe, be, uh, or maybe it rallies the entire country to his side because a bunch of whiny electors who are think they're above the votes of the people had their way. You know, I, I think it's hard for us to to divine where these things would go in terms of public opinion. I'll say one more thing now that I'm back on the other side of this. I don't know what and, side you're on. I'm trying to. I'm just trying to have an interesting conversation about it. Oh, I, you're I, I, you're on the shooter. side of banter. One <laughs> um, of my problems with the with the anti with like the faithless elector, the Hamilton elector movement, is it's like, and you kind of got to this love it, like pick a message, you know? You have a message problem. No, I mean it's like if and you, Tom, you said this too. If you don't think he, he he the electoral college should ratify him as president, then pick one reason why. Like I heard some of these videos were like. Uh, he's been ignoring the intelligence briefings. Like, you're not going to make him president because he skipped an intelligence briefing? <laughs> like, it doesn't work Either that pick that or, or or the Russia thing or the emoluments clause. I mean, it is true he's going to be in violation of the Constitution when he takes office because he's still getting payments and hasn't divested himself from his business. Um, so, But if that's the one that you pick, then that's the... But you, like, like you said, Lovett, it work needed to be done to build a movement on why you would violate this democratic norm. And, 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 you, and you need a clear rationale that everyone understands that everyone's And what I see with people sort of half-heartedly calling for the electors uh, to stop Donald Trump is I see a a larger problem with how Democrats wage elections generally, which is uh, uh, um, a refusal to actually say what you think, which is Donald Trump is a terrifying threat to the future of the country, and therefore this is why the Electoral College exists, versus you just don't like a lot of the stuff he does. Okay, so there's put that aside, this sort of confused notion of why they're doing it, and I think you're exactly right. But also just a fundamental uh, refusal to accept that politics is about power. It's about winning, and, 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 and persuasion is more than just convincing somebody that you have a better argument. It's, it's making them feel pressure to do what you think is right. And nobody seems to want to do that kind of work. I, I don't know. Don't you I will say, say one last thing. Yeah, go ahead, Tony. No, I, I will say I, re- I do appreciate that this whole discussion has led to one of the best SNL skits in recent history where Hillary Clinton reprised Love Actually to uh, bring the cue cards over to an elector's house and, and try to woo them. That, Very well done. that was better than all the other videos. So good. It was hilarious. <laughs> they should have sent that one out. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, the it's best. small comfort after they had the guy host, but uh, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, but no, but but Tommy, I think, but like that actually, that I was watching that. I actually think, I, I do think it's really funny. But one thing I thought was really interesting is if you watch it, you know, it's this, it's the Love Actually scene, I'm not going to describe it because that's boring. Uh, and look, we're nothing if not uh, the most riveting political podcast that you can listen to. Uh, but uh, Saved a lot of time there. <laughs> but at Jesus. one point, uh, she has a card that says, let's face it, he'll kill us all. And the audience laughs. And I and I just found myself thinking, like, we, mm, 
uh, is it funny because it's not true? Is it funny because you're afraid that it is true? Because if you're laughing, it means it's a joke. And if it's a joke, it's because talking about Donald Trump as a threat to democracy and freedom and the republic and like the survival of human beings on planet Earth is something you know is a fun thing to talk about, to be worried about, to feel oppressed by, but that you're actually not in your heart mentally prepared for being true. I think true. it's like laugh for two seconds, cry, pit in your stomach, go to bed. Oh, uh, wait. <laughs> this one's too reading too much into it? <laughs> This one into a dark, dark, dark place. Uh, one last thing on this, though. Don't don't we think that the electoral college should be abolished ultimately? Because here, here's my thought on this: either you believe that it is a step that it's it's an institution that exists so that someday, if necessary, it can overturn the will of the voters, or <laughs> you think that it's like silly and that the popular vote should always elect the president. And if you think the popular vote should always elect the president, then what do we need the electoral college for? If right now we're saying that the electoral college obviously shouldn't overturn the election. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering if it's one of those bills. You you couldn't abolish it like in four years because the political climate, we know what the political climate's going to be like. Maybe, maybe someone should pass a bill that in like 10 years <laughs> on a date yeah. certain, like the electoral college well, is abolished. So we don't something... know what the political climate is then. Well, it's a con- it's a constitutional amendment. But, but, um, right, right, right. right. I, but, but, but I guess what I would say is I'm actually, I think there's a middle ground. Like one thing I would be okay with is, um, I'm fine with the system of assigning a certain number of votes per state and having this sort of federalism, this relic of federalism be the way we choose presidents. I'm right. actually okay with that. Um, but then you don't need this. You don't need the Electoral College to be actual human beings. Oh, right. You could just assign. It should just be states get a certain number of apportioned votes based on the, the way we do it. I guess it. that's what I meant, too. Sorry. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we don't need to. The Electoral College, the electors don't have to be human beings. Right. We don't uh, need this, like, extra set of, dr- like, this possible possibility for yet another norm to be violated. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess. I guess, like, uh, yeah, I guess electing by the popular vote is probably a better system. I'm also, though, pretty glad that we don't have a national election, that what we have is state by state and county by county and city by city elections. I think that's a protection. and uh, Finding uh, new love for federalism here on Keeping It 1600. Damn right we are. <laughs> We're learning a lot about ourselves and about our views today. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Mar-a-Lago, because last night it was the yep. scene of an off-the-record um, gathering with reporters, uh, with tr- the traveling press for Donald Trump. Uh, there was Trump wine, there was Trump steaks, there were pictures. We know this because um, my gallon of Axios posted a bunch of pictures on Twitter last night. Um, it was off the record, but you could post pictures, as he told us in his tweets. So, um, And then there was one final picture of all of the reporters who went to this smiling with Donald Trump, yeah, like giving cl- his little thumbs up there. Like a class photo. <laughs> like a class photo. What the heck are you people doing? Uh, so this obviously engendered <laughs> a quite a bit of criticism on, on Twitter last night. Um, some reporters thought it was, and, and liberals thought it was completely outrageous that because Trump has threatened the press and refused to hold a press conference in 136 days or whatever it is, that they should not agree to any off-the-record meeting with him. Others thought, hey, it's an off-the-record meeting. You get to talk to the president-elect of the United States. Who, what reporter refuses that? You can learn important information. Um, and then I think everyone, I think most people thought the picture was pretty no, fucking silly. No, one, no, one, no one's a fan of the photo shoot. Like, look at us. Look at yeah. look. Here we are at our off-the-record gathering where Donald Trump has a thumbs up. You know, looking like uh, so, like everybody's favorite high school gym coach, gym coach. Tom, <laughs> Tom, go ahead. Good, 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 good swing. Um, the, the problem is, it, it's been 144 days since his last press, press conference, and he canceled the one he was supposed to have about all the conflicts of interest. Right. So, at this point, transition, Obama had held like a half dozen or more availabilities with press. Um, 
Trump has not done that. He hasn't named a real press secretary. They're talking about it being RNC communications guy, Sean Spicer, which, you know, he might be a, a known quantity with the press, but he's certainly not in the Trump inner circle the way Robert Gibbs was back in 2008. I, I think it's absolutely fine to do off the record conversations with the press. Um, I think it's good for them to get to know him. I set up many of those them myself with President Obama uh, and, and candidate Obama back in the day. It's that I don't think the press corps is fighting hard enough for the things that are really important. That's what makes me nervous. The White House Correspondents Association has been relatively impotent so far as as they've seen their access curtailed and they've gotten nothing from the Trump organization. I think the photo sort of encapsulate it because it has this sort of giddy tone of a, a young tourist snapping a photo when they met a celebrity. And it, it's not, you know, sort of doesn't bring with it the gravitas of how serious the job is, especially when it's a president who's more hostile to the press than any since Nixon. Yeah, I mean, isn't this a bit, this is an example of sort of asymmetrical warfare with like Trump violates norms and institutions all the time. And then, and then the rest of us, and he counts on the rest of us not. Right. <laughs> so, like, Trump, like, you're not supposed to threaten the press. You're not supposed to get your crowds riled up and attacking the press. You're not supposed to restrict access. You're not supposed to do these things. It's not law. None of it, <laughs> or at least most of it's not law, but it's just the way things are done. Trump says, fuck the way things are done. I'm going to do whatever I want. The press, on the other hand, will say, off-the-record meetings happen all the time. That's what we do. We're going to go to the White House Correspondence Center when Trump's you know, <laughs> when Trump goes and tells jokes. That's what we always do. Look, and when they call me and they offer me a contract <laughs> to write those jokes, who am I to say no uh, to that check? I'm not like you know. Look, I got to eat. So it's hard. So, so, so Trump win, so Trump wins on both accounts because when he wants to violate norms and and shake up institutions, he can, and when he wants to use them for his benefit, like he did last night, he can also do that. Not the first nationalist to discover right. uh, discover the appeal of using norms when they suit you, uh, but the uh, right. the thing also, by the way, is so so two things. One, um, this is not the first time the press have challenge an off-the-record gathering because there hasn't been enough on-the-record access. Amy Chozik of the New York Times uh, was talking about how in 2008, uh, they, they, uh, the New York Times and the AP sat out of an off-the-record gathering with Hillary Clinton because she wasn't doing enough on-the-record conversations. Huh. And moving forward, they did more on-the-record conversations. Uh, so uh, I am. it's, of, of course, fine for reporters to talk to uh, politicians off the record, as long as there is also plenty of on the record uh, conversation. You know, so this is not only a case where they are not uh, up, where, where where they are. They're, they're not just upholding a norm. They're bending over backwards uh, to give this guy credit right. and to give him a chance because they're so afraid of losing access. Because Donald Trump understands that uh, at this point, the press needs him more than he needs them. Right. The, the thing about the this whole discussion around sort of norms of institutions, like there, there was a reporter who tweeted on Friday that if Obama had done more tres, uh, press conferences, he would have left a, a better legacy and made it easier for to, to hold future president's feet to the fire in terms of that kind of access. And I thought Tommy, that was an incredibly really, stupid. Hold on. It was an incredibly stupid, naive thing to say for him because they are the ones who have to hold presidents accountable. You know, like. If the if the press corps wants to demand more access, they need to, um, you know, be far more adversarial than they've been. And like, you know, you have Rance Priebus on TV talking about fundamentally changing the way you do press briefings. Um, not only you know access to Donald Trump himself, but even just the press secretary. So there is this erosion of access, and their their response has not been close to sufficient to to meet with how serious of a threat this is to all of us who rely on the press for information. Well, no, see, I was going to describe John's face when you made an earlier comment and how outraged he looked. 
What, what you said when you because I, I was and now it's I too was, late. I was tweeting about that too. I was shaking my fist in the air when you talked about the. And now it's too late, Tommy. Now it's who, um, too late to go back. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sorry just, you missed the chance to interrupt. We'll find more for you very soon. I just, <laughs> you know what though? I have a feeling another will come around. <laughs> uh, yeah, this whole thing with is uh, there a bit of a prisoner's dilemma too? Because for for the press to take action, <laughs> right? Okay, John. <laughs> well, no, for the press to take action here, they have to all agree to do it together. And 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 and, and like when they uh, all, if a couple reporters more of a tragedy, the com. I guess we'll call it a prisoner's dilemma. We'll let that slide. Keep going. If um, if leave if, the game theory to me from now on, uh, but it's fine. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about game theory. Lovett said, um, <laughs> "Time for some game theory." Um, no, I mean, if a couple of them decided to protest last night and not go to Mar-a-Lago, then you know they lose out, and their competitors go and get the information, right? Yeah, but that's always yeah, but that's be- always the cost of 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 of. Uh, Fighting for a better kind of access at the expense of short-term, you know, uh, access that benefits the candidate or the president, right? I mean, yes, yeah, that's right. always why things end up off the record. That's why we are kind of live in a world where Politico says sources close to somebody who's close to somebody says X because we are the the power dynamic has shifted. There are so many outlets, there are so many reporters. Uh, they're all competing for the same uh, limited amount of uh, of attention uh, from from powerful people and. Uh, that change in power dynamic has really benefited. Look, the Obama administration has made use of that power dynamic, and now Trump, without the same kind of moral standards, is using it even more. And that's just the way it's going to be, unless uh, these outlets and the White House Correspondents Association finds a way to. Tell me, uh, this is a good time to muscle. interrupt. Now I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. You can't the, interrupt. The broader me problem I'm done. is that. <laughs> Love it. The, br- the broader done. problem is like you know it used to be it used to be that there could be some utility in reporters piggybacking questions, sort of following up on the person before them, or you know sort of denying, uh, refusing to go to a briefing as a group, whatever. I mean, th- in that it would have an actual cost for the president in terms of getting his message out. Unfortunately, I don't know that that avenue is is there anymore, right? Like his best buddy Sean Hannity is always going to be there to take his phone call and put him on air. Uh, Trump advisor Joe Scarborough will always welcome his call on Morning Joe. I mean, he's going to always have a way to get story out. I mean, Matt Boyle from Breitbart was in the it behind the uh, was on the dais at an event. So that's the change in in the landscape and the media that gives Trump even more power and that means the White House Correspondents Association needs to stand up and be even tougher than they've been. Which does not include smiling in a photo. Yeah. <laughs> With Donald and, Trump. and also maybe also Amen. recognizing that, you know, there's a double-edged sword in that uh, if a lack of access uh, doesn't cost Trump that much, then maybe access doesn't get him that much. It doesn't get you that much. You know, it's not like... Right. Look at know, Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair had more daily signups in one day than in 116-year history because Trump attacked them on Twitter. Like, there is a good business to be made in being adversarial. The three of us know a little something about that on this podcast, right? So, like, reporters need to get as tough as humanly possible and start digging into this guy. And who cares if you get a backgrounder with Rance Priebus? Like, move on. Figure out a way to do your job without it. Also, does Trump really does Trump really want to be seen smiling, thumbs up with the crooked media? It does because it says it says I own these people now. That's true. Look at my vassals. Just like his frog legs dinner with yeah, uh, with I, Mitt. Exactly. You know, you those people stand there. He's put he puts his thumb up in the middle. He's the center of that picture. He's the center of their world. They all got they all got potato chips and roast beef sandwiches and Trump wine and and he's like, look 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 at my supplicants. Behold, I own them now too. Yeah, not much of a dinner. There wasn't much of a dinner. Didn't look like it. it was like. Bunch of sandwiches and like a, a tub of mustard. 
let's speaking of violating norms and institutions, let's move on to what's happening in North Carolina. Okay. Another set of good news. So, I don't know uh, if everyone's been following this, but uh, in North Carolina, uh, Democrat Roy Cooper defeated Republican Pat McCrory to win the governorship. Uh, Cooper won by about 10,000 votes. So, he wins the election, and then the overwhelmingly Republican legislature calls an emergency session uh, that's supposed to be for hurricane relief, but then they added another emergency session on top of it to basically pass a bunch of laws that stripped Cooper, that will strip Cooper of as many powers as possible. So, some of the laws that they're passing. Uh, Cuts the number of appointments that Cooper can make in state government by 80%. Uh, it would make all of his cabinet appointments subject to state Senate confirmation, so uh, which is of course overwhelmingly Republican. Uh, it would ma- this is the, my favorite one. <clears throat> it would mandate that the state board of elections is chaired by a Republican in even numbered years. Hmm. <laughs> um, and it would also this is really dangerous. Remove oversight of the General Assembly's actions from the purview of the North Carolina Supreme Court since it now has a Democratic majority. Keep in mind also, this is a Democratic governor elected, uh, uh, but whose election was thrown into chaos because the Republicans spent weeks trying to overturn it and even considered going to the to the legislature to prevent the Democrat from winning. Um, these are also, uh, I think these are also legislative districts drawn under a redistricting, redistricting scheme that has been ruled unconstitutional. Well, yeah, no, in, 20, in 2013, they, the Republicans enacted a voter suppression law that the appeals court said uh, targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. Because of that, they said that um, they're going to need to do a special election in 2017. Right, 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 in right. The, in, 28, in those 28 districts, barring whatever the U.S. Supreme Court says. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the lesson, yeah, I mean, this is, this is really, this is some really bad stuff. And, and, and the lesson, I think, in history of these sort of, um, these tactics that sound just so far out of bounds. You can't believe they're happening. They raise hackles, editorial pages across the country, uh, opine against them, but they are highly effective. Um, and, and, you know, the efforts to gerrymander districts, like what were done in North Carolina are highly effective. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the special election in 2017, but I think, you know, this is the kind of thing we need to watch out for across the country because when you when you have uh, Republican governorships, when you have uh, legislators, uh, both bodies of a legislative legislative branch um, held by one party, you see these sorts of things happening, and it can have huge ramifications over time. And if we're not careful, people need to really watch it. So, question: We were just talking about the Electoral College and how Democrats should not subvert the Electoral College and the will of the people and use this procedural sort of body to overturn the will of the people. Um, Republicans have tried to do something similar in North Carolina. Do we learn from them, or do we not replicate them, or why? Well, here's one thing. (laughs) There's differences for sure, but I want to bring it it out for conversation. Well, again, going down to North Carolina with a sign that says, this is not normal, once again, fails to understand that this is about power, and these are human beings in positions of power who believe that they will not pay a political price for doing this. So you have to make them pay a political price for these kinds of decisions, and these people believe they're immune to it, in part because they have drawn their own districts, but also because they have selected their own voters uh, um, in, in all these ways. So so one lesson to learn, look, I, I don't believe that there's a democratic version of this. Uh, but one thing we we should be we should always be thinking about is how to enlarge the voting pool, how to make it possible for more people to vote, how to make it possible for ex felons to vote. Uh, um, you know, Democrats need to learn one thing, which is it is okay in politics 
to uh, um, think about how your proposals and policies will uh, help you retain power. I don't think you should go too far with it. I don't think we should replicate what they're doing in North Carolina. But it's okay to remember that this is about power. Like we need to help unions, and we need to help them uh, uh, to help them grow and and be a political force to help elect Democrats. There are there are th- we need to expand voter bases. You know there are things we can do as a party. Uh, you know politics doesn't ha- isn't just I don't know. You, well, you was, know what I'm saying. I, I was going to say that. It, isn't, isn't one of the differences here, because the, the shorthand is like, Democrats are too nice and Republicans know how to play hardball. But there's also a difference in the worldview, right? Like, we are, uh, our ideology uh, leads us towards protecting and building up institutions. And at least in this Republican Party, maybe not traditional conservatism, but Donald Trump's Republican Party, the whole belief is to tear down institutions. I would love to find the version of the Republican yeah. Party that didn't behave this way. Uh, but also, but, um, I, all that can be true at the same time. What have we gotten for all of our uh, respectability for uh, and, and all of our... Uh, Governing integrity. We control nothing. <laughs> we are bad. We are. We are in the wilderness here. So we have to do something. I think one one of the lessons of this thing is how important it is to resist these totally cynical efforts to claim that voter fraud is the real problem and not voter access. You know, you have you you have the the Voting Rights Act of 1965 getting struck down, and you know you you lose the ability to prevent you know these voter ID laws from popping up all across the country and that's something I think people really need to think about and work on uh, in off year elections because you know as John as Lovett said like when we enlarge the amount of people who can vote when we get more access to more voters including minorities African Americans Latinos um, Democrats tend to do well and I think that speaks well about the party and the values we stand for so I don't want to view this as much about power as about you know, trying to get as many people to the polls as humanly possible and avoiding these cynical attempts to pretend that the the darker concern is somehow someone voting twice. Well, I, w- I also want to talk about the role of protest here. Um, when McCrory won in 2012, he won by 12 points in a state that Mitt Romney only won by two points. Um, what happened then is he started passing all these, you know, very conservative measures, HB2, known as the bathroom bill, slashing minimum wage, health care, Medicaid, all this kinds of stuff. So the response was um, massive protests in, in, uh, in North Carolina. Uh, it's known as Moral Mondays. It was led by the North Carolina NAACP president, Reverend William Barber. And basically, they got all these different groups together and said, you know, everyone has their own issues on the left with the governor, but let's all come together and start protesting once a week on Mondays, and we'll pick a different issue every week, even if it's not your issues, and we'll go to the state capitol, and we'll protest, and we'll keep ourselves in the news. And within about eight months, uh, McCrory's approval rating was severely underwater, and a lot of people, and, and you know, and then he just lost by 10,000 votes a couple of years later. So I do think... Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of these protests are back at the State House now. I mean, I, I know, Lovett, you, you weren't totally denigrating the idea of protest, but this idea of, like, going down saying this is not normal with a sign, right, that's, that's silly. But I, I think at some point there's a, there's a, there's a value of, of, of peaceful protest. Coordinated, long-term, planned protests to cause a political end, like the winning of an election, is completely necessary and yeah. valid. Because part of what they found is in the polls is that because they continued these protests, the issues stayed in the news all the time. Right. And people understood what the governor was doing, which usually with state government, you don't pay any attention to what the governor's doing. Um, but 
The key here is it was what the governor, they were protesting what the governor was doing to people. So what his, what kind of effects his actions had. And I think so far in the transition with Trump, where we've fallen down here is we have not focused enough, partly because he hasn't taken any actions, right. but we haven't focused enough on what his policies or his picks for cabinet would mean to ordinary people. Right. And, and I think like... We should be talking about Mnuchin and his, you know, the Treasury nominee, the Treasury Secretary nominee, and his past of foreclosing all kinds of homes on people. I just every time I hear the word Mnuchin, like it just hurts my brain. It sound, it's just a bad sounding name. Yeah. It's just a mouthfeel. I'm gonna come back to it. <laughs> but it's like you know that I think that that's probably more productive than I, uh, I elector totally, videos. I totally agree. I think less sort of frenetic kind of uh, cl- uh, pearl clutching around Donald Trump's sort of lack of social graces, I mean, I'm being incredibly dismissive here, but focusing on what his policies will do to real people in their daily lives, what he'll do to Medicare, what he'll do to Social Security, I think that is going to be the the route here. Yes, and picking battles where there's an actual outcome that can be helpful for people. I mean, I think that what, what gets me a little annoyed about this whole Hamilton electors thing is that there's just no way to game this out where we get the result that I think we want or, or that would be positive. But there are a whole host of really challenging issues where a protest a week could raise real, real awareness about something Donald Trump is doing and actually hurt his approval rating and make it more likely that we take back seats in the House or the Senate or that he does not get reelected in four years. And that's going to be a long-term effort. Great. Agree. Okay. When we come back, we will have Anna Navarro. Today's episode of Keeping It 1600 is brought to you by Reuters TV. Reuters TV is the revolutionary video news app for busy people who want to know what on earth is going on. Created by the world's largest news organization, Reuters TV is video news as it should be. No hot air, no talking heads, and no theatrics. Other features include custom news broadcast between 5 and 30 minutes, updated throughout the day, scheduled downloads of broadcasts to watch offline, live feeds of major news events such as the presidential debates or press conferences, and it's all available on your favorite device, iOS, Android, Roku, and Apple TV. It's personalized, always up to date, and ready when you are. It's basically the opposite of cable news. See for yourself. Go to Reuters.tv slash 1600. That's R-E-U-T-E-R-S dot TV slash 1600. We're also brought to you by Sherry's Berries. Christmas is just days away, and there isn't much time left to shop, wrap, and deliver your gifts. So skip the crowds and the hassle altogether and choose a gift from Sherry's Berries. Sherry's Berries offers a variety of juicy, fresh berries dipped in your choice of chocolatey goodness and topped with decorative swizzles, chocolate chips, or chopped nuts. Plus, they've added some amazing new seasonal treats just in time for the holidays. And now you can get six freshly dipped strawberries from Sherry's Berries starting at just $19.99 plus shipping. That's over a 30% savings or double the berries for just $10 more. Just visit berries.com, click on the microphone in the top right-hand corner, and type in the code 1600. It's not too late. You can still have your order delivered by Christmas Eve. Sherry's Berries has something for everyone and every taste. And with Christmas right around the corner, there's only one way to get this amazing deal on Sherry's Berries starting at $19.99 and help support our show. Go to berries.com, click on the microphone, and type in 1600 and order them today. With us on the podcast today, we have GOP strategist, CNN contributor, Anna Navarro. Anna, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so how are you feeling in this um, post, post-election Trump world that we're about to uh, head into? Oh, I don't know. I guess there's, what, five stages of grief? Grief? I, I think I'm like on number nine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very well ensconced in anger. 
uh, and I don't know how to get out of it. I don't know if I want to get out of it. You know, I, 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 my recommendation is that if you're going to ensconce yourself in anything, you ensconce yourself in denial. <laughs> well, that's where I was for a year, and it was quite comfortable. <laughs> um, well, if you've been if you've been in it for one year, you certainly can do it for four more. <laughs> this is true. This is true. So, if you were if you were advising a Republican member of Congress right now who uh, wants to keep their seat. How would you tell them to handle Trump going forward? How do you uh, how do you how do you still win as a Republican while still um, kind of keeping keeping uh, Trump accountable and in check? Look, I, I would tell any Republican member of Congress: do what your conscience dictates. Do what is good for you. You are there to serve the people. You are there to defend the interests of the United States. You are there to defend the interests of your district. You are not there to be a rubber stamp. I think consistency. Uh, is going to be a crucial part of any Republican keeping his or her seat. You can't apply a different standard to Donald Trump than you did to everybody else who's been in the White House or who's been running for the White House. Republicans for the last several years have honed in, generally, rightly so, I think, on the conflicts of interest and corruption and issues that, that occurred all around Clinton world. And it has been something that Republicans hammered away at for years very effectively they can't now all of a sudden forget all that and not see the conflict of interest that donald trump is bringing to the table hasn't sworn in yet he's got uh one more month to figure this out but by gosh once he does i think he needs to get the same exact scrutiny and the same exact uh treatment as as anybody else would have gotten or uh any republican that looks the other way runs the very great risk of looking like a hypocrite and that's not a good look now, um, that would work for the members of Congress with a conscience. Uh, what would you suggest to the ones that lack one? Um, I think we need another tack for those <laughs> pretend, people. Pretend you have one. Oh, pretend you have one. Uh, you know, oh, that's good. Yes. Yeah, you know, in politics, perce- perception is as important as reality, maybe even more so. <laughs> so what, what do you make I, of look, I, 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 I think um, I think when it comes to issues like, uh, like Russia, when it comes to issues like conflicts of interest, Republicans have to be consistent. We are the party that has been anti-Russia, anti-KGB my entire adult life. And all of a sudden, I'm seeing some Republicans look the other way and try to pretend that uh, Putin is our friend. We are not the party that disses U.S. intelligence and at the same time thinks Russian intelligence is our friend. That is just inconsistent. And I think it might play short term, but it will not play long term. Yeah, so I was just going to ask, what do you make of Putin's rising approval rating among Republican voters? Um, I mean, it seems obviously like this is a a, a partisan thing that, you know, because Trump is now buddies with Putin's, now his supporters, you know, have warmer feelings towards him. But, I mean, is this something, is this indicative of some, a broader problem um, within the party and, you know, with partisanship in general? Like, how how do you get the Republican base back (laughs) to, 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 you know, basically what they've believed about Putin and Russia all along? And not just that issue, but other issues where it's sort of like you're you're seeing a drift towards Trump's positions no matter what Trump says. Well, look, when I when I see that um, when I see some polls that say Republicans have um, upwards of 30 percent approval rating for Putin, I frankly, I want to lay down, uh, suck my thumb after I dunk it in whiskey. Uh, I, I think it's, it's crazy. It's ridiculous. Uh, this man not only hacked our political system, this man is also part and parcel of the tragedy of the genocide that's going on in Syria 
this man is no friend of the United States. He is no friend of the Republican Party. He is no friend of any American. So I, I've got to think that it's either temporary insanity or it's part of this Trump phenomenon where we saw people um, who support him support him come hell or high water. Come, you know, any anything the man uh, did or said was somehow justifiable and defensible. But frankly, um, this Putin thing to me is just vexing. It's something that um, I would have never believed. Um, you know, maybe if I was under the influence of magic mushrooms or something of that nature, <laughs> I would have believed it. But I would have never, sober, I would have never believed that I would one day hear Republicans somehow justifying uh, Putin and his actions and the hacking and being and defending Putin and dissing the CIA. That to me is just... Um, I mean, it's a parallel universe. Here's here's what I think. I think we get ourselves some mushrooms. We go to Joshua Tree. We figure this whole thing out. <laughs> but, four four years. But uh, uh, what I was going to ask is, so there's been this uh, divide, I think, in conservative intellectuals amongst conservative journalists. I think you're a part of that conversation. Um, there have been the people who got behind Trump earlier. There are the never Trumpers who are now saying give give Trump a chance. He won. It was about the election, which I think is a, a, actually a reasonable position. But I, I guess my question is, what role do you see the the right wing media, people like Sean Hannity and Fox News, uh, playing in exacerbating this partisan divide over Trump's positions and changing the way people see things like Russia and what have you? Look, I, I think the partisan media, and it is not just the Sean Hannity's, it is not just the conservative media. I think partisan media on both sides uh, has has had a role to play in the polarization that we have in this country today. Um, I think the way we are polarized, the way we are uh, so divided, is one of the biggest national problems we confront today uh, in America. And, and I hope it's something that we all somehow comprehensively look at addressing. The problem is that today, you know, today, if you want to, if you choose to live in your mother's basement wearing pajamas and not interact socially, you can. And if you choose to live in a political silo, if you choose to live in political isolation, where you only read things that you agree with and reaffirm your view, where you only watch things that you agree with and reaffirm your view, where you only hang out with people that agree with you and reaffirm your views, where you only read things. I mean, you know, you can. And so we have, and, and by the way, without them necessarily being true, it could very well be made up stuff that people want to believe because it reaffirms their view. And so it's, it's not only that you're um, reading things that you only agree with, is that oftentimes those things are just patently false, but if you want to believe them, you do. And it's a, it's a very big problem with confronting us a nation and driving us further and further apart. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one thing that I also think is interesting, too, is I part of the part of the problem is the way that we talk about politics kind of turning everyone into pundits. Sometimes I wonder that people answer these questions because they want to help their team, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, what can I tell you? Political opinions are like uh, certain body parts. Everybody has one. <laughs> that was always a favorite saying of my father's. Um, okay, because we're because we're trapped in our uh, in our own liberal bubble. Um, from 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 your side of the aisle, what do you think Democrats could be doing better and more effectively to counter Trump, uh, or or just to do better as a party going forward? Obviously, aside from changing all of our positions to Republican positions, but politically, what do you think? Uh, what do you think we could be doing better, or where do you think we could learn going forward from this election? Well, look, I think for, for, it seems to me that for, you know, for the last month plus since uh, Trump has been elected, 
um, there's 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 a bunch of um, Democrats and liberals kind of going moping around the United States, hoping and grasping at straws. Right? Is the Electoral College going to do the right thing? Is he going to get impeached? Is, is there going to be investigations that prove him to you know that somehow affect his presidency? Look. Folks, let's first. First thing we got to do is come to grips with the fact that this guy is going to be president of the United States for the next four years. The Republican Congress is not about to impeach him anytime soon. He hasn't done anything impeachable so far, so we can just let go of, of that fantasy um, right now. And uh, and I think you know I think Democrats have got to figure out how to rebuild. And you know, you know, if we learned anything, and it kind of hurts me to say this because I've, you know, I've been one of the proponents in the Republican Party that has said we need to be more inclusive, we need to target Hispanics, target African Americans, and we didn't. And so perhaps there's been an overemphasis on the Democrat side, on the Democratic side, um, to micro-target uh, at the risk and at the loss of some of the white folks. Uh, in America, particularly in middle America. So I, I just I think that in the same way the Republican Party needs to figure out how to be more inclusive of those minorities, the Democratic Party has to figure out how to be more inclusive uh, of the folks that feel left behind. To me, one of the more sobering figures has been the number of Obama voters that voted for Trump. And I think that's that's somehow a failure of uh, the Democratic agenda, the Democratic policy, and Democratic campaign this year. Yeah, I, I do think that there is, you can have a message that is inclusive without it being a micro-targeted message, right? Like, you got to figure out a way to do both. And, and also the fact that Trump, I think Trump appealed uh, to the white working class by setting them against some other, whether it was minorities or, you know, elites in the big cities or the media or Hillary Clinton's campaign or what have you. And I think, uh, you know, appealing to white working class voters because they're white is not the way for Democrats to win. It's appealing to them because they're working. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think, you know, I think somehow uh, Democrats became too much of the coastal parties and, uh, and, and have to figure out how to go back to, you know, being the Rust Belt part. And look, here at a podcast hosted uh, from New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, we're the perfect place uh, to lead <laughs> to lead this rough Rust Belt revolution. <laughs> Anna, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. We appreciate the time. Thank you, guys. All right, take care. Thank you. Merry, good, Merry, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy, happy holidays. Happy Hanukkah. All of the above. <laughs> thank Bye -bye. you for the Hanukkah wishes. Take care. <laughs> Okay, thanks again to Anna Navarro for joining us today. This is our uh, this is our last Monday edition of 2016 here. You guys, I just before we go, I want you to know that I worked on the Russian accent, uh, but I uh, didn't do it. Want to do it? Want to do it? Want to just do like one second, just the way out? People can end that, you know. Why don't Why don't you use it as your goodbye? Hello, <laughs> it is me, Joe America from Google. Give me your password, please. <laughs> I protect it. You give me the password, I write it down. I keep it very safe. I put in basket, label basket, no passwords, please. For your safety, give me password. Okay. All right. All right. I think that's good. <laughs> Some improvement. Um, thank you. Thank you, everyone. We will. Uh, we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Bye, guys.